0: So we are continuing in our series this evening through the book of Genesis. And tonight's sermon, just to be apparent and open with how things are, is going to be heavy on explanation. Um, Part of that is just because of the the nature of the text we're dealing with. We're going to be in Genesis 14. Part of it is just because of the, the complex, detailed nature of the individuals we're going to be looking at, namely an individual named Melchizedek. And if we want to understand who this is and the different aspects of how he relates to the story of Genesis, but also relates to the person of Jesus, we have to do a lot of explaining. So bear with me. We're going to have some visual aids. We'll have a map in here at some point to help follow along, but there's going to be a lot of different things, a lot of different elements to this story. Have you ever listened to someone tell a story and they are not a very good one? Maybe they're a bad storyteller. I'm sure I have been in the past, so this is not a critique of anyone else. This is likely a critique of myself, but maybe they're telling a story and you're just like, what is the point of this? It's just kind of like aimless rambling. You don't really understand where they're going. What's the point? You're waiting for something interesting to happen, but maybe the story is just boring. It's... Not really exciting at all. That's most of my stories. Like there's no excitement to any of this. Maybe there's just too much information. You're just overwhelmed with all the details and you can't even follow it. And then we have the, the classic storyteller problem is that of going on rabbit trails. You know, I was bought a new light last week, come shipped to the house, I get the box. I notice when I pick up the box that it's all crumpled. It's all smashed up. I open up the box quickly, the the box is smashed up, the light comes out, and it's all broken. I'm like, great, I got to return this to Home Depot, I got to run, but it's late, so I'm going to go to work. After work is over in the morning, I'll finish up with work, I'll head over to the store after work's finished. You know, I have to go to work, take the bus in every day, and I have to get up, and when I'm getting on the bus, it's still dark outside. I just think that's wrong. To be getting on the bus that early, it's dark outside, you know the problem with that is daylight savings. Whoever invented daylight savings is just insane. They should be in prison somewhere. Don't understand it, don't understand why they'd have it, they should just be done away with. And you know it's expensive to ride the bus. You don't realize it, but it's, it's more expensive than it was three years ago when I was riding the bus before. You wanna talk about expensive, you have seen the price of eggs lately? The price of eggs are expensive, they're nuts. I thought about buying some chickens, and having my own eggs, but then I thought, some raccoon's probably gonna kill all the chickens, so I'm not gonna buy any chickens. If I told a story like that, like I am now, you'd be thinking, what is the point? You're trying to remember back to, oh yeah, he bought a light. That was the whole purpose of this story. His light's broken. Meanwhile, I'm talking about raccoons and chickens. So if if you followed all the rabbit trails, you're like, this guy doesn't know how to tell a story. Sometimes when people tell stories, they drop information to that story that maybe doesn't even relate. I was playing basketball last week, close game, really competitive back and forth, game goes to 11, it's 10 to 9, we have the ball. As we're bringing the ball to the court, I look over and there's a dog sitting there watching us. I thought, that's a cool looking dog, I want to go pet that dog. But I'm in the middle of playing a game, so we played the game, we scored the next point and we won. And you're like, what's the point of the dog? Why is there a dog in the middle of this story about basketball? And you say, what's he talking about stories for? It's because when we get to Genesis 14, we come to a very unique story. We come to an interesting story, but right in the end of that story, you're going to have this person. Melchizedek is his name. You're going to have this person just dropped into that story. And if we read through it, we're going to wonder what exactly is going on with this whole thing? Why is he here? He doesn't seem to fit into the story. And so that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to unpack this story from Genesis 14, because it really is a neat story. It's a neat story of Abram, and he goes and he rescues his nephew Lot, who's been kidnapped. But then out of nowhere, towards the end, when we think the story's wrapping up and we're getting to what the main point is, This guy's just dropped in there for three verses, and then he's gone. So we're going to have to understand all of the different nuances. We have to understand the context of what all of that is in order to truly appreciate not only the story of Genesis, but also the person of Melchizedek. So for tonight, just so we understand where we're going, I'm going to summarize the story of Genesis 14. I'm not going to read all of the verses. We're just going to summarize it together. Spend some time interacting with... Abram and Melchizedek, what does their relationship look like? Look at two other passages of Scripture that talk about Melchizedek. Um, Psalm 110 we read earlier, and then Hebrews chapter 7. And then eventually, prayerfully, we'll make some connections back to Jesus, which I think will be very clear. The story of Genesis 14, and I don't say this flippantly, could really be turned into a movie. You could, as, as we read through this, you can visualize this thing as being on the big screen. It'd be like a Lord of the Rings type thing, only way better. And Brett, you can't argue with me because it's the Bible. So, sorry, my friend. But it really is this, this conflict. There's, there's war. There's a battle. There's familial relationships. There's tar pits and people falling into them. Like, there's lots of different stuff going on that'll be really cool to read, really cool to summarize. But in the midst of that story, there's a purpose, there's a point to it that hopefully we will get to. So I have included a map. Told you there'd be some visual aids. Hopefully this helps us as we navigate through different names and different peoples. So the story goes like this. There are five kings living in the land of Canaan. They rule over these cities in Canaan. The largest of the cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. They may be familiar names to you. We'll we'll come across them later in Genesis. They're they're featured prominently in a few chapters. These five kings run these small cities just south. You see where that box is, just south of what's the Dead Sea, southeast of the Dead Sea. So they they rule these five cities, and these five kings, they have a pact. They're in an alliance together. These five cities, they're tight. They're, they're doing everything together. They're, they have each other's backs. The problem is that there are four other kings. If you look up at the top right corner of the map, there's the city name there. I don't know if you can read it, but it says Damascus. Past Damascus, which is current day Syria, and then into what is current day Iraq, there were four kings who also had a pact. The problem for the five kings is that the four kings were a lot stronger. They had full rule over the region. They were more powerful than they are. They would eventually, one of the kings, he's mentioned in verse 1 and verse 9, his name is Amraphel. He's the king of Shinar. That, that city would eventually become what's known as Babylon. If you're familiar with the biblical text, Babylon becomes one of the major empires that rules the world for a period of time. So this is pre-Babylon, pre-empire, but you have these cities, these kings, these four individuals way off on the right side of that map that rule all of this region. And they don't rule it in the sense that they have soldiers there all the time. It's just that they are so powerful, so strong in this area that these five kings specifically down here have to pay tribute to them. They have to pay taxes to these four other kings. So these five kings eventually get up the, the guts. They, they get up the initiative to say, we're not doing this anymore. For 12 years, we've been subject to these four kings who live hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And we're done with it. We're not doing this anymore. So we're going to rebel. We're going to fight back. And so if you can picture it in our modern day terms, it's, it's like the, the group that runs the playground at school You have the the bullies who run everything, and everybody needs to follow what they do. Well, now the guys who've been getting bullied, they're about to fight back. Like, we're done with this. We're not dealing with being bullied anymore. So they they rebel against these four kings, and eventually the four kings catch wind of things. Like, we're not getting our taxes. We're not getting paid anymore. So we're going to come, and we're going to confront these five cities. And you can see... If you see the blue line coming down the side of that map, that's the path they took. It's known as the King's Highway in the ancient Near East. That's, what, that's where the road was back in that day. So they, they took this road down, came all the way around south, wrapped all the way back around. So they made like a big loop around. And along the way, they're just crushing people. They're going into these towns and they're just taking whatever they want. These, these big armies coming through and they're just wiping people out. So they come through, they make this big loop, and they eventually arrive at a valley known as Saddam, the Valley of Saddam, and they engage in a battle with these five kings. Now these, these five kings, they're not very large cities, so you're not talking about tens of thousands of people, you're talking about hundreds, maybe a thousand people on the side of the five kings and probably a couple thousand people on the side of the four kings. So not large armies, but large enough that there's some battles going on. And you can see from the map that battle occurs right just south of the Dead Sea in this valley. And they start to fight. And pretty quickly, those five kings, the five who who've rebelled against the four, these five kings are being routed. They're just being, just being beaten left and right to the point that all of the men just start to run away. These soldiers are just running for the hills is the way the Bible describes it. They, they flee into the hills. So they run into the hills and some of the men actually fall into a tar pit. It's a dried up tar pit, but it gives a visual. Throughout this whole area, there are these tar pits south of the Dead Sea. And so these men, as they're retreating from this army that's just decimating them, are actually falling into these tar pits and dying. Like I said, it's a pretty cool story. It'd be pretty cool visuals in a movie. So the, these men are falling into these pits and they're dying. People are being slaughtered in this battle. The rest are just running for the hills. And the five kings can't do anything about it, they're, they have no power to stop what's happening. And these four kings say, well, to the victor go the spoil, right? That's the old saying. So I'm going to need your clothes. I'm going to need your jewelry. I'm going to need your money. I'm going to need anything wealthy that you have in any of these cities. And these four kings and their armies, they go into these cities, and they literally take anything that has value. Animals, jewelry, possessions, whatever it is, up to and including, in verse 12 of chapter 14, a man named Lot. We didn't touch on Lot very much. He showed up last week because Lot is the nephew of Abram. Remember, Abram was the central character of our story starting last week where God has called Abram out of his nation. He's called him to be his and to be the leader of his people. He would make of Abram a great nation and coming with him is his nephew Lot. Now, Lot and Abram in chapter 13, we didn't cover this in our series, they actually go their separate ways. Abram heads to a town, Hebron, towards the left of that little box. Lot, he settles, and he says he pitches his tent towards Sodom, and eventually, one chapter later in chapter 14, he's actually living in Sodom. To the point that when these kings come through, they just take him. Everything he has, take him, they take his family, and they essentially kidnap him everything they're taking they're taking for their own possession and so someone like lot is going to end up becoming a slave to these four kings way off the map to the right the bible then goes to describe that there's a man who escapes from the battle and actually comes back to hebron and he tells abram abram somebody took your nephew these these kings they took him he's gone And if we ever wondered, like, is Abram kind of a tough guy? This sort of answers the question of, yes, he is a tough guy. He goes and he immediately gathers to himself 318 men. 318 men from his family. And he has an alliance that's been developed with the Amorites. The Amorites were a a nation of people. You can see the Amorites are actually on the, the map there as well. They were a nation of people that the Israelites would deal with hundreds of years later But for now, we're just two individuals. Abram had this relationship with them, and he says, get all of your men together. We're going to go get these. We're going to go get my nephew back. So Abram and 318 men go traveling, likely by foot, about 150 miles. So they travel from Hebron up to Dan, you can see Dan's at the north, and then past Dan up to Damascus, where they chase these four kings and their armies, trying to get Lot back, trying to get his nephew back. It would be the equivalent of traveling from here to slightly slightly past Cleveland. So imagine running by foot from here to Cleveland, chasing after an army. That's what they did. Abram leading 318 men. And these men, the Bible describes them as trained men. The idea is that these were, these were like mercenaries. These were like armed retainers. These were men who were skillful fighters. They were well-trained. They were very fit that this trek was like nothing for them. They show up 150 miles later, and the Bible doesn't get into a ton of details, but basically just says they wipe the floor with them. They go to these four kings, these four dominant kings in the region, and they just crush them to where all of the men of these these king's men are just fleeing. They're just running away. And Abram, he rescues his nephew, and it says he takes back all of the possessions that were taken before. Pretty tough guy. Pretty cool dude. Again, pretty neat story. Easily could be a movie. Someone would make a killing off of it. I'm sure. But he returns from rescuing Lot. And this won't be the last time he rescues Lot. He does that again in a few chapters. And he's victorious. And he's, he's showing even these ancient kings. And he's saying, you don't mess with somebody's family. You don't mess with my family because I'm going to take care of business. And he, he goes against these, these kingdoms, these kings, and he just wipes the floor with them. And then we see in verse 17... Chapter 14, I think I have it up here. Yeah, I do. This is after the battle. It says he returned from the defeat of Kedileomer. That was one of the kings. That was the, the leader of this, this alliance of four kings. From the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh. That is the king's valley. So this valley is right next to Jerusalem. It's present day Jerusalem is where this valley is at currently. We go to verse 17, and so the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom was one of these men who previously had lost all of his possessions, all of his people. His, his town was basically ransacked by these four kings because he lost this battle. And so Abram comes back to what's now Jerusalem, and the king of Sodom meets him there, having heard about this great victory. And if you go to verse 21, we see their interaction. It says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, so give me the people, and the goods, but take the goods for yourself. So give, give me the people, you take all the possessions. And you might be thinking, well, look at that, that's good of, that's good of the king of Sodom. You know, all of these possessions were originally his, he's offering them to Abram now, he just wants the people back, so he's being very generous with his, with his possessions, but the reality is, he's just following what the custom was for the day, And he had no right to any of this. He had no right to the people. He had no right to the possessions. He had no right to any of it because Abram's the one who won all of this. Abram and his allies, they won this wealth. And so the king isn't necessarily being generous. He's not necessarily being kind. Abram pretty quickly sniffs out what he's doing. He says in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. So he's making an oath. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, I will not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. He sees right through the king of Sodom's game and he says, you're just trying to get something over on me. You want to be the one who takes credit for my wealth and for my victory and for everything that I have so that when people see Abram and they say, wow, that's a very powerful man, you can say, well, I'm the one who gave him it. But what do we remember from a couple of chapters ago? Who is the one who would make Abram a great nation? The king of Sodom? No. Abram says it, God most high. And he throws in there, possessor of heaven and earth. King of Sodom, you think you're something, you have all these possessions, the very ground you're standing on is owned by my God. And he's the one who is going to make of me a great nation. So we already see this promise from Genesis 12 that God would make Abram a great nation. We start to see it playing out real time in Genesis 14. Who's the one who walks away as the most prominent figure in this story? Not the king of Sodom, not these four kings who are from far away, nobody else except for Abram. He's the one who turns out to be the strongest. He's the one who turns out to be the most wealthy at the end of the day. He's the one who walks away the greatest, and so we see God even that quickly beginning to work out the promises of Genesis 12, that I will make of you a great nation. Practical note for us, the same God who made the promise to Abram in Genesis 12 is the same God who makes promises to us. The same God who is fulfilling that promise in Genesis 14 is the same God who fulfills that promise for us. I will remember your sins no more. That's a promise of the gospel. He no longer holds our sins against us. Instead of being condemned, we're forgiven, and in forgiveness, we find freedom from the power of sin. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That is a promise of the gospel. That when we come to God in the middle of this chaotic world with all of our stresses, with all of our worries, when we're completely worn out, God says, here is a promise of rest for you. My grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't just save us and then leave us. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't leave us where we are. He delivers us not only from sin, but he says, all these hardships, all these difficulties in life, I've given you grace even for those things. One of the promises he gives is he turns the hearts of his father to their children and the hearts of the children to their father. He doesn't leave us alone. He puts us into a community of people to love each other, to be united with each other, and to care for one another. That's a promise of God found in the gospel. So the same God who made all these promises to Abram and is fulfilling them here even now in Genesis 14 in this story is the same God who says, you are mine, I will care for you. And that is a promise from God. And every promise from God we know Paul tells us ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. All of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So God promises to Abraham and his fulfillment of that promise it ultimately shows the character and the integrity of our God. That when he says he will do something, he will do it. Now, if we stopped at this point in the story, Genesis 14, we have a pretty complete story. We've seen conflict in the beginning, we've seen war, we've seen battles, we've seen people falling into tar pits, we've seen um, Abram going full like Liam Neeson from Taken and like, I'm going to get my family back. That's what he's doing, you can picture it. You can picture the movie right now, except Abram doesn't have a phone to talk into and say, I will find you and I will kill you. But that's the idea. So he's he's going off, he's doing this thing. He comes back. We have this full and complete story if we just stopped here. But we skipped 3 verses. Genesis 14 verses 18 to 20. Going to read them. This is talking about Melchizedek and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he being Melchizedek blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We read this and I think our initial reaction needs to be, who is this guy? Who is this person? He just pops on the scene. He's not in anywhere else in the chapter. He just shows up. Who is he? First description of him if we kind of go down the list is that he's the king of Salem. If you are piecing this together, Salem is a city that would eventually be named Jerusalem. The capital of Israel. A prominent city that we find throughout much of the Bible. Salem is from the same root word as we would say the word shalom. So Salem literally means peace. So Melchizedek is the king, we could say, of peace. He's described as a priest of the Most High God. This was before the law was written. There were priests offering sacrifices for sins, priests offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. But Melchizedek, he's in a completely separate category. He's not, he's not under the law. He is, He predates the law. So his his priesthood is different than what we read about when we get to the rest of the Pentateuch, when we get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the rest of the Old Testament, where we have priests who are sacrificing in the tabernacle and in the temple. He's a completely different entity. He's a completely different category. And you know, it's, it's not really surprising that we have someone else who's worshiping God. A lot of times when we read scripture, we're thinking, well, Abraham was like the only dude in the whole world worshiping God at the time but there's not. There's someone here who is ruling an entire city, and he is priest to God. His name, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. We learn that from Hebrews. He gives blessings both physically and spiritually with food, and he praises God for Abram's victory. And then Abram, at the very end, he views Melchizedek as his superior, even offering offering him a tenth of everything that he has. He's offering him this tithe. So in the immediate context, when we evaluate who this man is, I think we can kind of see why he's included. Because he's the exact opposite of the king of Sodom. He's the exact opposite of this man who comes along and just wants to take all the credit for everything, wants to be the one who gets all the spotlight put on him on the one hand, you have a king of righteousness who worships and serves the true God and he blesses Abraham with food and he blesses Abraham and praises God for what, Abra- for what God has done through Abraham. And Abraham's response to this man is to willingly submit himself to him and say, you are authority, you are superior to me. Then we have another king who comes along that if we go back to chapter 13, the Bible describes Sodom as a city of wickedness. So rather than a king of righteousness, we have a king who is wicked, who doesn't give Abram anything. He doesn't even say thank you to Abram. He wants to come along and say, I'm going to scheme my way in to take credit for all of this. And then ultimately, what is Abram's response to him? I want nothing to do with you. One king, he says, I will serve you. I will be subservient to you. The other king, he says, I want nothing to do with you. So in the immediate context, We kind of see why he's here. Makes a little bit of sense. Still a bit odd, but it makes a little bit of sense. But Melchizedek's significance doesn't end in Genesis 14, because Melchizedek is what's considered a type of Christ. We've talked about this a number of times through Genesis. We've seen this already. Adam is a type of Christ in a variety of different ways. Abel is a type of Christ. Hebrews says that As Abel's blood cries out for justice to God, how much more does Christ's blood cry out for justice? We will see later in Genesis, Joseph is a type of Christ. So when we think of a type of Christ, it's simply a a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's a person, it's an event, it's a thing, something that previews who who Christ is and his ultimate coming. That's That's a type, that's a shadow of things to come. So, Melchizedek, he's a type of Christ in two different ways. He's a type of Christ because he is a king, and he's a type of Christ as he is a priest of God. And he's a type because while Melchizedek is a king and a priest to God, Jesus is a true and greater king and priest to God. We're going to see that in a couple of different passages Psalm 110. Have the first three verses up there. That's where we'll start as we focus in on who Melchizedek is, because he's only mentioned two other times in the Bible. Here in Psalm one ten, we read this earlier, and then one other time in the chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter seven, an entire chapter. This song written by this psalm written by David. If we go through and we remember who David is, he's this king of Israel about a thousand years or so after Abram. He's regarded as the greatest king of Israel. He writes these words, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, if we think about this, we just stop here at that phrase and we say, why is the king of Israel, the most important man in Israel, writing the words, the Lord says to my Lord? How does he have two lords? We can understand one of them, the very first word of this, if we looked at it in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's the, the formal name for God. If you have certain translations, will actually capitalize all the letters of Lord. That's an indication that it's Yahweh. We can understand one, but David says Yahweh says to Adonai. He uses two different names for God. So why is he talking about two different lords? Jesus actually helps us with this. Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, set set the context for us. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees and the Pharisees um, are coming to him and Jesus asks them a question. And this is what he says. What do you think about the Christ that is the Messiah? Who is, whose son is he? They say, the son of David factually correct. The Messiah is to be born from the line and lineage of David. Jesus says this in quoting Psalm 110. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. So if David calls him Lord, speaking of the Messiah, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him. No one is able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. No one would even ask him a question after that. He's like, well, this, guy's, this guy's a little different. We can't, we can't get anything past this guy. Factually correct. Who is the father of the Messiah? Factually correct, it is David. He is the son. The Messiah is the son of David. But Jesus says, then why does David call him my Lord? It's because Jesus is saying that the Messiah, even though he's from the lineage of David, the Messiah, the descendant of David physically, he is far greater than David. And by David using the name of God, Adonai, to describe the Messiah, what Jesus is saying is that the Messiah, whoever the Messiah is, is equal to God, equal to Yahweh. So Jesus didn't need to come and say to them, look, I'm God. He didn't need to be that open. Because the very words of scripture, the very prophecies about him, the very words of the Old Testament, the Lord says to my Lord, he says, it speaks of me and I'll prove it. And I will fulfill all of the Old Testament and what it speaks of me he says, I am, in fact, the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jesus as the Messiah, if David's going to write that a thousand years before Jesus even came, he's saying, I am God. Without ever saying the words, I am God. The Lord says to my Lord. Those, that very phrase in and of itself speaks to the fact that Jesus is God. It speaks to the deity of our, of our Lord. So Psalm 110 starts with this incredible declaration. The Lord says to my Lord, both Father and Son are God, Yahweh and Adonai. Father and Messiah are one. They are God. And then notice in verse 2 and 3 how he's described. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning the dew of your mouth of your youth will be yours. He's saying Jesus this Messiah he will rule as king. And it's from Zion the mountain of God the city of Jerusalem where the true king Jesus greater than David greater than Melchizedek will rule and reign. Melchizedek comes along, the king of Salem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness. And Jesus comes along thousands of years later and he says, that's, I'm greater than him. That same place he ruled, that same city he was king, I will be king of that city. I will rule, the scepter of my rule will come out of that place and I will rule over everything. Paul confirms this for us, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. This is where Christ's position is right now, seated at the right hand of God. The position of the person in Psalm 110, the king that David references as his Lord, is sitting at the right hand of God. And what that means is that Jesus Currently, present day, is king with full authority, full superiority over all things. It's fitting that we're talking about the kingship of Jesus. And we didn't even plan this because we added this sermon after the fact. Today is one week until Easter, it's the beginning of the Passion Week of Christ. Traditionally, today is known as Palm Sunday where we remember and commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry. He, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people there are praising him as the Messiah are declaring him to be king as he's going into the very city that thousands of years before the king of was blessing Abram. The very city that Melchizedek ruled is the same city that Jesus is riding in on as Messiah, as king, and saying, I'm greater than him. The true king of righteousness comes into this city. The true prince of peace, the greater king, rides into this same city being praised. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So it's fitting that we're talking about this. Just as Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abram in Genesis 14, And we consider his blessing and his kingship in comparison to Christ. How much greater is Jesus's rule and reign than his? How much greater is the blessing that Jesus gives to us as Melchizedek gave to Abram? Abram shows honor and respect to Melchizedek for having authority and superiority over him. How much greater is Jesus's claim to authority and superiority over this world? And for like, well, Melchizedek might not like that too much. He might not like the fact that he's the lesser. He says it himself: God, the possessor of heaven and earth, the same God Yahweh, who is equal to Adonai, who is equal to Jesus. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. So Melchizedek himself would recognize, now nope, this man, he's greater than me. So Jesus is the greater king than Melchizedek, but Melchizedek was not only a king. He is a priest king. In fact, nowhere else in the Old Testament is anyone ever described as a priest king. Saul was never a priest. David was never a priest. Aaron was a priest, but he was never a king. In fact, the Old Testament law doesn't even allow for that category. You couldn't have a priest and a king in the Old Testament law. But Melchizedek, like I mentioned before, he predates the law. He is God's priest king. And so we come to Psalm 110. Did I leave it out? I must have left it out. You're going to have to trust me or look it up yourself. (laughs) Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn, and I will not change, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. To understand how this ties into not only Jesus as king, but also Jesus as the true priest, we have to go to Hebrews chapter 7. We will not look at the entire chapter. There's a lot of information here. Um, I encourage you to read it when you have an opportunity. Hebrews is my favorite book in the Bible. Um, So I enjoy it, but there's a lot of heavy stuff in here. A lot of heavy stuff in here. And it's all good, but it would take us much more than seven minutes to get through that. <laughs> Just as Jesus did in quoting Psalm 110, Hebrews does the same thing. I have the verse on the screen, verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, him is Jesus, it is witness of Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's ground this in some context. Verses 11 through 16. I'm going to read these verses. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident that when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And if you read that and you're like, what is he talking about? That's fair. So here's what he says: If the priesthood from the Old Testament that started with Aaron back in Exodus, if that had been able to maintain and produce salvation, there would never have been a need for another priest like Melchizedek. The problem is that the Old Testament law and the Old Testament priesthood he says here we're incapable of bringing about perfection. We're incapable of bringing about salvation. Why? Ultimately, it's because the Old Testament priest, Aaron, and those who followed him in his lineage, in his descendants, were all sinful people. So every time they made a sacrifice for the people of God, they had to make a sacrifice for themselves to cover their sins. And so they can't possibly bring about through their act as a priest, they can't possibly bring about salvation, they can't possibly bring about perfection because they are not perfect. You cannot have something perfect come out of something that is imperfect. And also, verse 23 of the chapter, Levitical priests died. Says here, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing into office. Aaron died, his sons died, the priests during David's reign died. They were prevented from making this continual intercession as priests before God for his people because they succumbed to one of the curses of sin, which is physical death. So you can't have something produce salvation that in and of itself dies. So verse 18, where the Old Testament symbolizes that Aaron is weak and useless. The Lord Jesus, a priest forever, like it says in verse 17, after the order of Melchizedek introduces a better hope, verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment, that is the Old Testament priesthood, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope is introduced because the true and the greater priest, greater than Melchizedek, greater than Aaron, brings about a new covenant, one not marked by imperfection, but one marked by perfection. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's now in Jesus that this new covenant that was not imperfect, but now is perfect. This new covenant is guaranteed because his priesthood never ends. Verse 24. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. There's no fear that this priest is going to die. Where death overpowered Aaron and every Levitical priest from the Old Testament before him death holds no power over Jesus. Verse three of the chapter, uh, there it is. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. That's describing Melchizedek. In the same way that Melchizedek just comes onto the scene, he pops up and he, he does what he needs to do, and there's no record of his, his time ever ending. In the same sense, he foreshadows Jesus as the true priest who will continue forever. The greater priest. And then we read an amazing word. Verse 25. Because of all of this stuff, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Often when we consider salvation, we think in objective terms, point in time realities. That the gospel saves us now, we are justified when we believe the gospel. It's like we've described justification before, it's like that courtroom setting, we're standing before God, God's ready to declare us guilty and Jesus comes along and says, I pay the penalty, for their sin, for their crime. So we we think of it in very objective terms. I trust the gospel, then I am saved. It's a very true thing, it's a very good thing, it's a reality. It's a beautiful thing of the gospel. When we think of the gospel, we think in these immediate time-bound, point-in-time realities to say, well, when I trust the gospel, I am born again. John 3 tells us that. I am regenerated. I am united to Christ. And I would say, yes, amen, those are beautiful things. But the gospel is like a diamond. It's like a diamond in the sense that when you look at it from one vantage point, you see some beautiful things. But when you look at it from a different vantage point, you see different beautiful things. And if we focus so much on one aspect of the gospel, we can miss and fail to connect other beautiful things of the gospel and what Jesus is doing for us. And if we don't look at the gospel through a different lens, we fail to connect our salvation ultimately to Christ's intercession. And what we do is we miss a significant thing that God's doing for us. What does verse 25 say? Christ lives to make intercession for us. We've already described that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He rules and reigns as king. He rules and reigns as a priest king. And in his role as a priest, he is sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. That is, he's saying, those sins we've committed, God, I paid for those. The sin that Pete committed, God, I paid for those. The wrath going to be poured out on all of us for our sin, no, God, I paid for those. Every moment of every day, he sits and makes intercession for us so that when God would come in his wrath to destroy sin, he says, no, I've covered all of their sin. John Calvin puts it this way. Christ turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze away from our sin. In his intercession for us, he turns the Father's eyes away from our sin and to his righteousness. Every moment of every day. Now you might say, well, does that mean that Jesus' work on the cross wasn't enough? He has to do this every single day? Nope, that's Hebrews 10. We don't have time to go there. But Jesus doesn't need to die every single day for our sin. He died once for sin. It's the finished work of the cross. And through his intercession, what he does is he applies his death and his sacrifice for us on our behalf. I want to wrap things up by just looking at one implication of Christ's intercession. And I am indebted to John Bunyan for this. Um, If you're not familiar with John Bunyan, he's a Puritan preacher from the 1600s most famous for writing Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read that allegory, very good. I would encourage you to read it. But in addition to Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote about 60 other different pieces of literature that have been published. One of them is called Christ a complete savior. If you haven't read it, it's about 50 pages long, 60 pages long. You can actually find it on the internet for free. Download it, read it. He's writing the 1600s, so there's going to be some these and thous and different ways of wording. Muscle through it because it's good reading. Christ, a complete savior. A question he asks regarding salvation in Christ. I've updated the language slightly. He says, you must also be made by your awakenings, that's salvation, to see what Christ is. This is an absolute necessity for how or should a man be willing to come to Christ that knows not what he is, what God has appointed him to do. So what he's saying is, if you don't know who Christ is, if you don't know what he's done, you won't come to him. If you don't know what he's about, you won't come to Christ. He ties this into intercession a few paragraphs later in this book. I'm going to paraphrase what he says. He says, if all we know or think of Jesus is our justification, without understanding his intercession for us, we would view our relationship to him as a formula of either being in or being out. And we would view Christ as not a loving Savior, but as a severe Savior. If we only view him in this way, we will never freely come to him. Verse 25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. The way we could translate that is completely, exhaustively, or even we could say for all times. Jesus saves for all times those who come to him. Why? Because he lives to make intercession for us. If all we think of the gospel is, I am justified. It's a beautiful thing. I encourage you to meditate on that. But if that's the only thing we think about, What we run the risk of doing is to turn salvation into simply a transaction. It's simply a transaction where we get something from God and Jesus takes our sin and that's salvation. So then when we approach God, we approach God not in a position of of true humility and love, but we approach God as though, you know, I kind of owe him something. He's, he's done something for me. He's given me something. We lose the personal nature of the gospel when we just take it to a transaction. We lose the personal nature of the gospel when it just becomes something that's a formula that we look and we say, well, I was guilty and I'm no longer guilty now. That's great. That's wonderful. I believe that and I think we should all meditate on that regularly. But if that's all we think of the gospel we miss, Christ's intercession for us. That each and every day, not one point in time in the past, but each and every day, he sits at the right hand of the Father and he says, my sin covers that. You sin today, my sin covers that. Each and every day. And verse 25 says, he does it to the uttermost. Just as we sin to the uttermost, Christ saves to the uttermost. And so the reason that you and I can be confident that our sin we committed today won't cause us to lose our salvation, won't cause us to be separated from God, is because Jesus, our priest and our king, is saying to God, I've paid for that. And he intercedes for us to the uttermost, completely, exhaustively, for all time. Louis Burkhoff, he's a Dutch theologian, he wrote this, it is a consoling thought that Christ prays for us. Even when we are negligent in our prayer, he is presenting to the Father the spiritual needs which were not present on our minds and which often we neglect to include in our prayer. Jesus prays for us. With all of our stresses, with all of our fears, with all of our worries, when we fail to come to God, Jesus prays for us. When we mess up and we fall into sin, Jesus prays for us. When we question if we're even Christians, if we can even come to Christ and our faith is shaken, Jesus prays for us. Inherent in understanding Christ's role as priest is that he invites us to him. He says, come to him. Come to him with your burdens, come to him with your cares, come to him with your worries and your fears. And what you will find is you will find rest for your souls. Christ intercedes for us based on his one-time sacrifice on the cross. Hebrews 10 is very clear with that. He gave up his life in our place, and so we celebrate Christ's finished work on the cross by taking communion each week. We celebrate the fact that he died for us, and he intercedes for us by taking communion every week. And it is meant to be a celebration. It's meant to be something we remember. It's meant to be something we re- We celebrate as we take it together. And we should take it if we have trusted in Christ. And so if you are here this evening and you have trusted in and believed in the forgiveness of Jesus for your sins, this applies to you. Jesus intercedes for you and on your behalf. And so as we take communion, I would encourage you, if this is your reality, if this is you, take communion with us, join together with us as we do it, And I would invite you to remember not only the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, that one point in time, but that he applies that sacrifice to us each and every moment of each and every day through his intercession for us. What we're going to do is the team's going to come and sing. We're going to sing a song together. We'll take communion. But before we do that, let's just bow for a word of prayer. God, we praise you for your gift of Jesus. His death in our place, it leaves us justified. And his intercession for us, it gives us the confidence to even come to you. So we come to you thankful. We are thankful for Jesus. Celebrating together, Father, the truth and the reality of the gospel, both that we are justified and that you intercede on our behalf as our great high priest. So as we take communion together, let us remember the reality of the gospel. Let us remember Christ and who he is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Thanks for taking a minute to watch this video. My name is Pastor Chris Moran. I'm one of the pastors at Eternal City Church in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. Eternal City is a church that values biblical authority. We teach the Bible verse by verse, week by week, and we are seeking to eventually preach the whole way through the Bible. We believe that Jesus is God as He claimed to be, and His person and work are the center of the entire Bible. We believe that the Great Commission is still relevant today for Christians, that Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. Eternal City is a church that values diversity, in that we are a church of all kinds of people, cultures, classes, colors, and capacity. We are a church that values community, and we seek to see our members hold one another accountable and build each other up in discipleship. We are a church that has a plurality of leadership for pastors and deacons who are servants who serve under the pastors. If this sounds like an interesting church to you, we would love for you to visit our website to find out more about us, eternalcity.org, or come visit us on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., 1300 Swissville Avenue, Wilkinsburg, PA, 15221. Hope to see you soon.